we're coming up on the start of the new academic year and you know we're going to have some interns in the ICU that have never been in the ICU before and, and I always tell them hey listen I got lots of safety nets in place I want you to make decisions and I want you to try things and I'm not going to let you hurt patients okay it's, it's not going to happen so as a leader you have to create that culture that encourages and and really nourishes that sense of safety so that people can try different leadership styles and try different things and and take point on on something Dr. Kristen Mount is an Army critical care medicine physician currently stationed in Tacoma, Washington. She graduated magna cum laude from the University of Scranton, completed medical school, and then did a fellowship at Walter Reed in critical care medicine. She was deployed to Baghdad, where she served as a sole intensivist and consultant in critical care. She also was the only woman to serve as Chief of Department of Medicine and the Deputy Commander of Medical Services. Currently, she serves as a Critical Care Medicine Consultant to the Army Surgeon General. She is married to Colonel Dr. George Mount, an Army rheumatologist, and they have three boys under the age of seven. Any views expressed during this episode reflect those of Dr. Mount and do not represent official views of the Army Medical Department Department of the Army or Defense Health Agency. We hope you enjoy this episode where we discuss her journey through medicine and leadership, as well as leadership in the ICU. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. We are super excited about today's interview. We have Dr. Kristen Mount with us today. Before we jump into it, Peter, how's everything going in the lab? Wow, what a big question. <laughs> the, uh, the, lab, the lab is going, life is busy, um, but making progress every day. So it's, you know, a PhD is accumulation of those small steps you make on a daily basis. And then I'm having fun along the way and learning a lot. And that's what it's really about. Good, good. I'm glad. Dr. Mount, how are you doing today? I'm great. You know, um, I just right before I came in and sat down with with you guys, um, I was really honored to promote um, a physician that I've known for a very long time from major to lieutenant colonel. And so um, now that I'm a colonel, I get to do all sorts of fun things like that. So that was great. Uh, but I did change out of my dress uniform, though, because it's very uncomfortable to sit around it for too long. So, yeah. Awesome. So we wanted to start out the conversation today and just talk about how you got involved with leadership and leadership training and writing and kind of talking to people about medical leadership. So um, I am, I've kind of always been surrounded, I guess, in theory by leadership. I'm the, uh, my dad is a retired army obstetrician. Um, His dad is retired Navy captain. My mom's dad is retired army colonel. And so you know, we're kind of a military family and it's hard to grow up in a military family without absorbing some of those concepts. And, uh, so when I was looking to go to medical school, my dad handed me an article about the uniform services university and, and I read it and I'm like, this sounds like a really interesting place. And, and I went and looked and, and I thought it was great. And while there, you know, you're, you're a commissioned officer. So you're learning 
um, all of the things everybody else learns in medical school. And then you're learning a little bit about how those things happen in active duty, um, you know, in combat and on the battlefield. And, and then you're also doing some focused leadership type exercises and, and um, experiences. And so it, it started back then. Um, and then over the years, I found myself interested in taking on leadership challenges. So maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, um, but I was given opportunities very early on to kind of step into roles. So right out of fellowship, um, I came here to Madigan and um, they needed somebody to be director of critical care services. And, and I looked around and it was me. Um, I was the one that was supposed to do that. And so, you know, if you can imagine um, two days ago, I, I was a fellow and now I'm in charge of all of the ICUs and the step down unit and all of the quality and safety and things like that. And so um, I, I've just kind of continued to fall into those leadership positions over the years. I guess maybe I enjoy, like I said, glutton for punishment or, or, you know, taking on challenges. Were any of these leadership experiences like unexpected when you were first handed them? And how did you kind of deal with the challenges that they faced in terms of like managing your own time and, and taking on a lot of these new responsibilities? So um, that's a great question. And I think that certainly coming right out of fellowship, I did not expect to be put in charge of all of the critical care for a tertiary medical center. Um, and, and, you know, the ICU, very similar to the operating room and the emergency room are our very core mission critical services to any hospital. Um, there's a lot of things you can't do in the hospital if you don't have an ICU that's functional, that's safe, that provides quality care. Um, and then on top of that, I was also in charge of the resident education. So we're a training platform and we have a lot of residents that rotate through the ICU. And, and so I very much remember I, I had a 45 minute handoff from the guy that had the job. He, I arrived and he said, great, in 45 minutes, I'm getting on an airplane and going to San Antonio. Uh, but don't worry, I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks and, and backfill on, on somebody who's deploying. And so um, a panic set in. Um, and, and what I did is what I have learned and then since used in every new job that I take is you, you, have, to, uh, you have to recognize that you're going to feel overwhelmed. You have to be okay that you're going to feel overwhelmed. And then you have to sit back and learn. And I asked a lot of questions. Um, there were people that came to me with decisions that needed to be made pretty quickly. I made those decisions with the best knowledge that I had. And there were others that I had the opportunity to go find somebody and ask, go find the head nurse and say, hey, what do you think about this? Go find the chief of quality and ask um, our director of respiratory therapy, who is still here. So he has literally mentored me <laughs> since the day I arrived. Um, he was also a great resource. So I kind of, I, I took it on, but I did so carefully and really took my time to try to understand my role and how that interacted and the things that I couldn't, couldn't do and who I needed to talk to. You mentioned when you were put in that position, like initially panic set in because you felt like you were thrown into something that maybe you had some preparation for, but up until that point was probably the biggest role that you've had. And so when that initial feeling crept in, what were some of the things that helped you get through that and realize that, you know, I am capable, I am able to do this, and I just need to pull some people together and do my best and get it done? 
So um, I had, I had really good mentors. Um, I had, there were some, um, I did residency at this hospital and then I went to Walter Reed for fellowship and came back. So there were still some more senior physicians in the hospital that knew me from residency and were invested in my success, which is a really great thing. Um, and so I, I relied heavily on them. Um, and then at the end of the day, so something I learned at officer basic training when I was doing a really terrible job at land navigation, I was paired up with a former special forces medic. And, and I remember he said, Kristen, put your Kevlar on, put your head down and just march in a straight line. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of, you know, in those moments of panic, I, I just remember to put my helmet on, march forward in a straight line, um, relentless forward motion, even if it's teeny tiny baby steps. And, and so those are usually the things I say to myself to, to calm down. And, and then again, you know, um, nobody was, none of the decisions that I was making were life or death decisions. So that's the other thing is putting some things into perspective. Clinical medicine at the bedside in the ICU, yes, life or death decisions. But whether this policy gets signed today or tomorrow and, and whether we want this central line kit or that one, those are not life or death decisions. And so just reminding myself that, that it was okay to make a decision. And if it turned out to be the wrong decision, we'd find out and then we could go back and, and change things. Um, so all those little mental tricks um, really helped. And I, and I still, every job I've had since then, as I've progressed in jobs, that period of uh, drinking from the fire hydrant, it's feeling a little bit of panic gets longer and longer and longer with the more responsibility that I have. So even after all of these years, um, stepping into a new job, I know that I'm going to feel overwhelmed and a little panicked. And um, I, I think even just knowing to expect that has helped me deal with that. It's interesting to me that you're describing this feeling of panic anytime something unexpected happens or you're faced with this new challenge, but you've never, you never said that it ever made you feel unprepared. And and I feel like that's a feeling that a lot of people can have when they're feeling overwhelmed with information or responsibility. And it just one of your points from your, the article that you wrote recently was to maintain a perpetual state of team readiness. But I also feel like it implies that you have to have a perpetual state of self-readiness as well. And so how do you kind of instill that feeling in you so that you can feel like you can welcome the sense of panic, but also be self-assured in your skill to manage that stressful situation. Yeah. So I think there's a couple, a couple things there in that concept. So, you know, in our article, when we're talking about state of readiness, you know, there's readiness in terms of your medical skills and abilities, right? When was the last time I intubated a patient? When was the last time I, you know, took care of somebody with sepsis? And then there's the readiness to kind of step forward and lead. And I think the way that you prepare for that, you maintain that readiness so that when the panic sets in, you can consciously set the panic aside is you practice. And you guys have talked about that a lot, you know, in, in previous episodes, there's a lot of talk about studying leadership and leadership technique and leadership theory and philosophy. And that's great. But if you don't practice it, um, then it's not going to help you out when you really need to fall back on something. So, I have always looked for kind of everyday small opportunities to practice some of those leadership skills and everybody can find those. It doesn't have to be, you know, grand statement in the C-suite and now I'm in charge and, and doing this. Um, 
I would bet that every day, somewhere in the course of your day, there's an opportunity for you to practice a leadership technique, either in your personal life or in your work life. And so if you do that and you practice those enough and you find out what works for you or what doesn't work for you, um, then when you're in that situation, you've got something to fall back on because it's kind of, it's kind of in, you know, innate almost at that point. Mm -hmm. Peter brought up the article and I just want to talk for a few minutes about it. So um, Dr. Mount was part of a team that wrote this article, 10 leadership principles from the military applied to critical care. And so can you just talk to our audience about why you guys felt that this was an important topic to bring up? And then what were some of the takeaways that you guys learned? Yes. So uh, my co-authors, co-authors on that um, were Dr. Kevin Chung, who is a retired army intensivist. Um, he was most recently the chair of medicine at New Form Services University. And then um, Colonel Jessica Bunin, who um, is a internist, psychiatrist, and intensivist. Um, and she is the associate dean for DEI at the Uniformed Services University. And we were sitting around kind of talking to each other back and forth on text one day in the heat of the pandemic, um, right, probably a couple months after it began, when everybody was really starting to feel the stress of, of what I've kind of always called a chronic mass casualty situation, um, and, and we thought, well, you know, how could we use what we've learned in terms of, of battlefield medicine and army leadership principles and frame that for getting people through the pandemic, right? Um, and, and getting people through some of the really horrible uh, experiences that we were all having in the ICU. Um, and, and that was how it started. And so we brainstormed a bunch of different techniques that we were using and things that we had tried and kind of favorite things from the past. And we were able to narrow it down into some more general overarching concepts and then some specific kind of targeted tactical things. Um, and so that was, it was a lot of fun brainstorming with them. I, I, um, I was responsible for a lot more of the practical, like tactical things. Um, and, uh, and, it was good. I hope, I hope that people read it. I hope they found it useful. I think it applies in non-pandemic times too, right? I don't know that there's a lot of ICUs out there where, where there isn't at some point a, a team crisis centered around patient care or resources or, or things like that. What do you think is special about leadership in the ICU as opposed to things like surgery or academic medicine? So I think the ICU is a place where you have to toe the line a little bit between a couple different styles of leadership and problem solving because the stakes are usually fairly high. If you're a patient in the ICU, it's because you are critically ill. So the most critically ill patients in the hospital are in the ICU. And so a lot of your decisions need to be uh, timely and you need to communicate effectively and failure to do so can result in less than ideal outcomes for your patients. And, and in order to do that, you need a team that functions really well together, like clockwork. And, and so if you don't take time to build your team, um, then, then everything's harder. And so um, you know, there are two, two problems with um, leadership that I, I, I see over and over and over. And the first is that people are very quick to want to solve a problem. And so they apply a solution without actually defining what the problem is. 
And then on the opposite end of the spectrum is something called, I'm sure you've heard it, it's paralysis by analysis. So you spend so much time and you want to know all the details and all of the ins and outs that by the time you arrive at a solution you want to try, everything's changed. And the ICU as a, as a critical care, as a medical practice exists in between both of those. So for example, when I was a fellow, um, I used to do time in the surgical ICU and the medical ICU. And when I was a fellow in the surgical ICU, I'd get a call. The residents had to call us with new admissions and questions and, and things. And I'd get a call from the surgical ICU resident and they'd say, Hey, you know, Mrs. Smith is here. Um, she was really hypotensive. Her map was down in the forties but I gave her a little bit of ephedrine and now the map is 65. And I'd say, great. Why was her map in the forties? Oh, I don't know, but it's fixed now. And it's like, okay, you've, you've treated the symptom of the problem, but we got to figure out what the problem is. You haven't actually fixed the problem. On the converse side in the medical ICU, the, the Mickey resident would call me and, oh, he's Mrs. Smith. So, you know, she's, she's hypotensive or maps in the forties and it might be renal failure. So we sent some labs and some urine lights. I've ordered a renal ultrasound. Um, I've got the echo tech coming in. We might need a cardiology consult, uh, EKG and all of this stuff. And I'd say, okay, but what's her blood pressure now? Oh, maps are still in the forties. It's like, okay, you, you got to fix the blood pressure <laughs> and then all the rest can come. And so it was both, it was both spectrum. So my goal as a fellow was to bring the surgical ICU a little more into the let's define the problem while we're fixing the symptoms and bring the medical ICU into, Hey, let's fix the symptoms while we're defining the problem. And, and that's where the best ICU practice I think exists is being a little bit uncomfortable with uncertainty. Um, you're not always going to have all of the data that you want to have or the answers that you want to have, but you've got to be able to move out and make a decision because your patient's really depending on that. And so to exist in that gray area, it takes a lot of teamwork. You got to have everybody on board. Um, we talked about this in our paper. Everybody's got to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Everybody's got to move out in the same direction. They need to understand the target, where we're we trying to go. And, and they need to be able to give each other feedback and communicate um, using some, you know, close-up communication and skills like that. So that's... That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Very long nutshell. <laughs> I actually um, love that uh, contrast between medical and surgical ICU teams because that's totally the stereotype between you know internal medicine doctors versus surgical doctors. Surger surgeons just want to let's let's fix it, let's do it, let's get on it right now. And then yeah. you know medicine doctors have the um, the tendency to debate and talk and talk and yeah and, yeah and try to figure it out first so that's, I love I love them all I love yeah you know, yeah, I love yeah everybody but it's like right. you guys come over here and you guys come over here yeah and you know the problem with um not defining your problem is that you're not gonna necessarily apply the correct solution you might but you may be really far off and and you can bring that into team dynamics as well so um, you guys are medical students. You've been on clinical rotations. Um, you know, if, if you think of a scenario where, for example, you have a, a medical student that's really kind of struggling to present their patients on rounds, right? There's probably a bunch of things that you could do to, quote, help that person. Um, and what I tend to see most often is the assumption that that person's just struggling 
with, with, you know, getting the data and presenting the data. And so maybe we should just not give them as many patients. And, and it may be that that's the case. It may also be that they didn't get very good EHR training. And so they don't, they're struggling in the morning longer than anybody else to gather data. It may be that they have some obligations, um, you know, kids drop off at daycare, um, you know, a, a bus that they have to catch that's sometimes late. And so they're not getting to the hospital with enough time to, to pre-round. And so if you just assume that it's because they can't handle three patients, um, you're, you've fixed the symptom, but you have not actually fixed the problem. And so um, I try to teach, um, when, when I talk about leadership with, you know, junior physicians, I, I, you can earn so much um, credit and, and save a lot of resources if you take just a little bit of time to try to uncover what the actual problem is. Just don't get paralyzed by all your analysis. <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about developing your team, at least with the latter example. Mm -hmm. How do you get at the root of these problems, especially when you're trying to work and develop a team that's supposed to work like clockwork? So um, I, I observe a lot. Um, I talk a lot like in these situations, but, but if, if I've got a problem that I'm trying to solve, um, I, I will sit back and watch quietly, um, interactions. Um, the other thing you need to do again is ask questions and, and listen to the answers. I've gotten more accomplished by sitting down with individuals or small groups and, and just asking a question, Hey, how come we seem to be missing our spontaneous breathing trials in the morning. Like what's, you know, what's going on with that? Um, and just listening to what people have to say. Um, sometimes you'll have objective data streams, right? Our hospital, hospitals are full of metrics. We've all got, you know, targets and metrics and goals and things like that. So sometimes you'll have actual objective data to look at and analyze. Um, but it's, it's careful observation and then asking a lot of questions. And then when you think you've figure out the problem, you go back to the same people and you say, so I think that this is the problem. Is that what you think the problem is? And, and either you've nailed it or you're pretty close, or that may be part of the problem, but it's part of the problem that you can solve kind of right now. So let's fix that. And then let's keep looking into what the real problem is. You brought up a couple examples. The first one being the medical student struggling, and then maybe your team's not meeting metrics for you know, respiratory therapy in the ICU. And I think the easy thing to do would just be to say, come on, you're not like, pick it up. You're not, you know, meeting the standard, but you brought up such an interesting, like alternative to that. And that's, you know, why not, why aren't we meeting these standards? And mo more than likely, you're probably going to uncover something that you didn't even realize. It's not because the person's lazy or because people aren't going to do their jobs. It's probably because there's an inefficiency somewhere or something that can be corrected. And I think it's interesting, like the reason why you're doing that is because you want either the student to improve and to be able to help the team or the patient's care to improve. And so I think that's so cool as a leader, instead of just being critical and saying, come on, like pick it up, like trying to figure out, you know, how can I improve the team? How can I improve how the patient's being cared for and really looking at the root causes instead of just telling somebody they, they need to be better. Yeah. And, you know, um, the, the success of the team means the success of the patient, 
Um, and so you owe it to the patients to not whip your team in, in terms of performance. Um, and, and I always, um, you know, I always go back and, and try to look at data that I'm given um, at the source, um, particularly if it doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, just to kind of carry on the example, if, if I'm presented with data that none of our SBA, you know, spontaneous breathing trials are, are being done, um, you know, in the morning, well, that, you know, that doesn't sound right. So let's go back and how did you get that data? And what are you counting as that data? And, and um, you just, I, I think as a leader, you, you owe it to your team to give people the benefit of the doubt that they are there to do well, to perform well in the hospital. They're there to take care of patients. Your students are there to learn how to be doctors. And so you as the leader really have to make sure that the corrections you give and the directions that you give are coming from an informed place. I noticed that um, in the references of your article, you cite Simon Sinek. I take it you're a big fan of Simon Sinek. I am. You know, it's so funny, though. Um, I have read a lot of leadership books. And for me, the struggle is that a lot of it doesn't stick, mm -hmm. in all honesty, right? You know, a lot of books are written to encompass an entire theory or program, um, sometimes there's proprietary language and, and I've certainly done, you know, a couple courses that the army has purchased for us to take. Um, and I always leave those super fired up. I finish a book I'm like, this is the best ever. And I'm going to go do all of this tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and I'm like, wait, what was that again? And so what I like about Simon Sinek's writing is that he takes these complicated sort of leadership theories and he boils them down to very practical examples and statements. And so um, I, I take a little bit from all of these courses. And the biggest thing I've, I've taken from him is explaining the why. You are not going to get people to where you need them to be if they don't understand why you're asking them to do that. And that applies, applies in medicine when you're talking to your patients, right? Um, it applies in medicine when you're, when you're leading a team. Um, it applies in leadership when you're, you're trying to change policy or, or shift the way operations are, are happening. And so um, I really enjoyed that book and that concept. I use that all the time. And I even say, I'm going to explain the why. So here's the why I'm asking you to do this, or here's the why I think we need to do this. Yeah. I noticed a lot of his language peppered in this article. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the army loves him. So it was really cool. I was taken <laughs> to, um, we do. And so I, I was really um, honored. My commander a couple years ago took me to a conference with all of the command teams in the army medical department. This was before the pandemic. So it was well, okay. And, um, and so Simon Sinek spoke live to the conference and, you know, took questions and answers. And again, it was really dynamic, but still casual conversation and with, with a lot of practical examples. And so um, I think a lot of us that have had exposure to his theory and his, you know, all of, of course, all of his TED talks and his books really enjoy um, what he has to say. I want to talk about leadership styles for a quick minute, because you brought up ICU and surgery, and we're talking about all these things. And um, I'm on a surgery rotation right now and around a lot of other students who are on surgery. 
and you always hear that you know people getting yelled at and and people leadership being like a little more aggressive in an acute situation so like surgery ICU that leaders are just more aggressive and I've always chalked it up to you know it's an acute situation it's meant to be firm not necessarily aggressive um, but a lot of times it can come off as like being overly aggressive and so as a leader in an acute situation where you know maybe in order to get somebody's attention you have to raise your voice or you know decisions have to be made quickly and you can't explain you know why you might have to yell or why you might have to do something that could come across as negative how do you balance that being an effective leader and being firm in an acute situation versus being seen as aggressive or condescending or or something of that nature i think that takes a lot of practice and when, when I say, you know, you've got to practice, you know, leadership skills and tactics and little bits and pieces, that's one of them. Um, you know, I absolutely work in a high stress environment, but I have found that, um, and I learned this early on, raising my voice doesn't do anything but upset, you know, the people that are also desperately trying to take care of that patient. Um, but the tone that I use and, and the volume that I use I moderate a little bit. So that's kind of clearly a very tactical thing. I think what I learned um, after a while was that you lose credibility, right? It's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. Um, if you're stomping around all the time and anytime, you know, something starts to get a little tense, you're yelling and demanding and I don't have time to be polite. I don't really buy that. And the problem is you lose credibility, and so then when you really do need people to listen to you and I, and I need you to focus right now and I need you to start chest compressions right now, it, it's not the same performance. Um, you know, the, the thing that I, I learned was uh, email, right? So I don't yell a lot in, um, and I never have really yelled a lot clinically, but boy, would I blast people over email mm-hmm. all the time really bad habit. Um, you know, passion, I'm fired up and you know, this, this code and it was not run properly and da, 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 and I hit send. And I'd be like, yeah. And then, you know, an hour later, uh, my conscience, who's my husband, who is, um, a wonderful rheumatologist, he's an army rheumatologist. So kind of the opposite in terms of, um, of intense all the time work, right. He would, he would say, Hey, you know, I don't know that that email did what you thought it did. So, you know, I, I'd get called and it took me a long time to learn that what was happening was I was losing credibility so that when something really did matter that I really needed to impart right now, I, I didn't have the same attention that I needed. And I, and I think it's hard and, and people have different personalities. And the other thing you have to remember is um, I, I try to remember, and I actually, you know, I heard this on, on, one of your recent episodes, because I, I remember it because I was like, oh, I do that. I, you know, I don't know what everybody's day has been like. Um, I don't know what you've encountered today. I don't know how well you slept last night. I don't know if you're feeling sick. And so um, I try to give people a little bit of grace to not be their normal polite selves and understand that that is usually, hopefully anymore, not coming from a, a place of, of malice or ego. Um, it certainly is in some cases, but I, I try to give people a lot of slack and, and then I try to model the right way to approach a a tense clinical situation. If you are in our ICU and there's a cardiac arrest, it's very quiet. 
right? I don't need, nobody needs yelling and screaming. Everybody needs to hear what um, I need to hear what everybody's saying if I'm the code leader and I'm fairly short. So I'll stand on a chair um, in the back of the room so I can see everything. I can watch everything. Everybody can hear my voice, but I'm not yelling and nobody's yelling. Um, and, and so I think that's a better way to do things, but like it takes practice. You feel that urge and you, and you want to throw something or stand your butt. You just gotta, you gotta, Oh, what's a, what's a better way for me to get across how anxious I am or how upset I am or how critical this is right now. Cause it's probably not making people feel bad by yelling at them. So when you, when you were learning this, I feel like even now you, you mentioned that your husband gives you a lot of feedback and in, in your emails. And sometimes you may feel like you're wrong and you feel sorry. And it's, it's very reminiscent of the idea of being an adaptive leader, which you talk about in your article. And I've, I've seen this, um, this term be very uh, spread about medical leadership literature recently. Um, and so one, I wanted to get your definition of adaptive leadership, because I think everyone has a slightly different opinion of it. And then two, how do you how do you practice adaptive leadership without coming across as someone who lacks uh, a form like a, a unified moral foundation or coming across as too volatile of a person who's always changing their mind and changing their values. Cause I feel like that has a negative connotation. Like where do you hit that sweet middle ground? Right. Yeah. So I think it's a great question. And I think I, so I separate adaptive leadership from a moral, ethical, legal code of, you know, operations. There, there are two different things. And so in my mind, an adaptive leader is somebody that can look at a situation, do, do have a little bit of understanding of what's going on, decide on a path that they want to take, and then apply the right kind of style to that situation. So in some cases, it may be terse statements. You need to do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it, because this is very critical. In others, it may be very democratic style. Hey, let's, let's sit down and, and meet. We all don't really love how the schedule is working right now. Can we brainstorm, you know, some ideas about how we want the schedule to be right? So it's, it's understanding the situation that you're in and the right kind of leadership technique or style to apply to get the result that you need. And all of that can happen on, on the same foundation of, of moral code and ethics, personal and medical, um, certainly, you know, illegal stuff is, you know, never illegal, but um, it, it can all happen on that foundation. And, and you're not, you won't be seen as wishy-washy or, or volatile, right? So wishy-washy is, is um, what happens when you are trying to solve a problem, you don't know the problem. Mm-hmm. You're just coming in and, and throwing everything against the wall to see what what sticks. And, and um, so I think it's, it's a little bit, um, it's flexing and, and you get those styles by practicing. There have been times when I've tried a democratic leadership style is totally backfired because it was the wrong issue to bring to the wrong group at the wrong time. And we just got stuck and mired in, in group think and, and not really able to decide. And I was like, Oh, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. And, and likewise, there are times when I've come in, I've been very firm and and thought that was the right style and it turned out not to be um and so all of those lessons uh, my one of my mentors calls them learning scars all of those learning scars you accumulate over time and, and you get better at figuring out what's the right way to handle this so that's kind of that's kind of what i think of adaptive leadership 
do you talk about being adaptive and then earlier you mentioned being calm and controlled in stressful situations and I think the best way to practice both of those is to put yourself in those situations and then learn from them. So I want to hear, do you agree with that? And then other than that, what are some other things people can do to get better in those stressful situations at regulating themselves and being able to respond appropriately? So I think that's critical. And, and one of the things that leaders need to be able to do, you know, particularly, you know, residents and senior residents and attendings is you need to create a safe space for people to practice those techniques. So, so you create that safe space by a letting everybody know it's a safe space by, by delegating decision-making to tasks that are within the skill set or medical knowledge of the person that that's going to make those decisions or, or practice and then deferring to them and let them make that decision and let's try it and let's go ahead. And, and that applies both to, policy type things, but also to, to medical, you know, practice. It, there's very rarely one right way to do things in the ICU. And, and we keep trying to make one right way to do things. And, and there's always another study that comes out that says there's doesn't matter what ventilator mode you use. It doesn't matter what presser you use first. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you do what type of dialysis you use. And so in a situation where there's lots of correct answers, create that situation where somebody can practice. And then you as the person um, you know, step out on a limb. What's the worst thing that's going to happen, right? So as medical students and residents, your attendings are not going to let you fail. And they're not going to, you know, that's why, that's why I tell everybody, we're coming up on the start of the new academic year and, you know, we're going to have some interns in the ICU that have never been in the ICU before. And, and I always tell them, hey, listen, I got lots of safety nets in place. I want you to make decisions and I want you to try things and I'm not going to let you hurt patients, Okay, it's, it's not going to happen. We, so as a leader, you have to create that culture um, that encourages and, and really nourishes that sense of safety so that people can try different leadership styles and try different things and, and take point on, on something. Um, so that answer, well, there was a second part of your question. Yeah, so I talked about putting yourself in those situations and then my, my other part was just other than doing that, what are some things that somebody can do to feel more comfortable, I guess, being uncomfortable and being able to adapt to stressful situations? So rehearse in your mind, right? You may not be at the forefront of that stressful situation, but you're watching. And so think about the decisions that are being made. Would I make that decision? Would I not? Would I have noticed, you know, that that abnormal lab probably led to this, or, or what I have noticed that that conversation, that tone has completely turned the group off. So being a really good observer of the situations that you're in and then mentally running through in your head, well, how would I have done that? Would I have done the same? Would I have done different? Um, and, and I think, you know, in academic medicine, or at least in, in the hospital, in terms of academic medicine, you know, that's morning report is the prime place for that, right? So case presentations and the team from last night gets up and you present your case and everybody's sitting in the audience and you, you can think what I, so would I have done that work up first? Would I have ordered this differently? And, and then you get to hear the more senior experienced people walk their way through things. So it's, it's just kind of constant rehearsal in your, in your mind. I think that's, I mean, that's what I did. Um, I would kind of stand on the edge and say, Ooh, gosh, you know, that was great. I never would have thought of that. Um, yeah. So as we're starting to wrap up, I wanted to ask, as we ask all of our leaders, looking back on your time through your training 
uh, both in the military and medicine. What is some advice that you would like to impart to rising young medical leaders? So the, the advice that um, I wish I had heard and that I think is really pertinent right now where we're all struggling collectively with, um, with burnout and frustration and, and lack of resources is as you are in a position as a leader to set boundaries across which work is not allowed to intrude you have to do that and then you have to adhere them yourself. Um, so, so for example, when I was the um, chief of the department, sometimes I'm here, you know, I'm calling the weekends, I'm here and I'm rounding. So I would go into email and I would, you know, write emails and I'd knock out some business and I'd come back, you know, the next weekend morning, I'd have answers from those emails. And, and I was like, no, 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 like, no, 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 no. I don't want you answering your email on a Saturday or a Sunday. That's, that's your time. So I, I used to set, um, I used to say very specifically, um, you know, I, I leave, if I'm not on service, I leave the hospital at this time. I don't take my computer with me. I don't have a government cell phone. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, but I don't have a government cell phone. And so if you need me, please call me on my phone. Because it's got to be important enough that she need to have a conversation with me. And the number of times that I was called over five years was twice. And each one of those times, it was absolutely critical that, that they needed to get in touch with me. And, and by me setting those boundaries as the department chief, everybody else also felt like they could set those boundaries. They knew they were not going to get emails from me. They weren't going to get texted from me. And obviously this is all outside of, you know, you being on call for the, you know, for your service. So as you have the opportunity, protect your people, help them protect their time and demonstrate that in yourself. Lead, lead with that example. And, and I wish somebody had told me that earlier because I probably could have done that more effective earlier in my career. Awesome. I think that was really great with um, how much burnout we're seeing and how much overworking that people are having to put in with a lot of physicians and all healthcare workers leaving healthcare. And so I think it's great to set boundaries and make sure you're putting life and importance as well as medicine. Um, the last question we like to ask everybody, uh, Peter and I love to read. And so any book suggestions for uh, medical leaders or just some of your favorite books that you've enjoyed reading recently or in the past? So you, at this point, you guys have such a long list. I don't know if I'm going to come up with anything original. So um, I was looking at my, I anticipate this question. I was looking at my bookcase this morning. <laughs> and um, so two different examples. So I really, one of the first um, books that resonated with me as a physician that I read um, was Complications by Atul Gawande. And I find his writing very accessible mm -hmm. and very personal and very personable. And, and I like that book because they're short vignettes. So you can kind of get through them and, and read them easily. And um, for some reason, you know, some of those vignettes really spoke to me. And, and so I really enjoyed that book. Um, it's almost, it's almost leadership lessons without knowing you're reading leadership lessons, which I think is sometimes the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. The other one that I'm going to throw out there, um, which is a little unique. Um, I'm trying to decide between, uh, maybe I'll give you both. So the first one is, um, so now we're going to go into military history. The first one is called, we were soldiers once and young by Hal Moore and Joe Galloway and, and general retired Moore 
um, basically led and commanded the very first air assault group. So air assault is um, moving into combat by helicopter versus airborne, which is jumping out of airplanes, neither of which I do, by the way. And, um, and so he, um, they were in a, a very tense battle in Vietnam. It's one of the first times that helicopters were, were used in a, you know, an active war zone for active casualty evacuation. And, and the book is full of opportunities to see really great leadership and not so great leadership. And so when I say, you know, mentally rehearsing things, as you read the book, there are different actions that, you know, clearly in retrospect probably could have been done differently, all of which are pointed out in the book. So it's not like I know any better than, than these guys. I certainly don't. But I, I think that one is a way to look at leadership a little bit differently than, than some of the more theoretical books that, that we read. And then the other side of that, if you want to go back a little bit farther, is um, Rick Atkinson wrote three books. They're called the Liberation Trilogy, and they are about the United States in World War II and the African theater, Italy, and then um, Europe. And they're really long and they're really dense, but they're fascinating. And very similarly, you, you get to see the way that leaders at the time were thinking about things and analyzing things because he has access to a lot of archival documents and diaries and letters. And, and so you get to see, um, you know, our first really massive involvement in, in a worldwide campaign from the, the boots on the ground all the way up to, to the Pentagon. And, and he writes in, in a very nice storytelling. He's a good storyteller. So they're long and they're thick and they're dense, but, but you kind of get dragged in. And so I think it's, again, it, it shows you lots of different levels, levels of decision-making and, and leadership and different styles. So if you like history and you like military history, those two, if you want something that's kind of leadership on stealth, uh, on stealth mode, then, um, you know, I like, I like a tool to one day and I like what he writes. Caleb and I are both big Atul Gawande fans. Mm -hmm. uh, our dream is to get him on this podcast. Oh, you should. You should. We, we tried. I don't know him. I can't help with that. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate this conversation and learned a lot. Caleb, what about you? Yeah, thank you so much. This is great. You guys are great. I am so honored to be invited to talk to you today. I really had a good time and, and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I, I love the. Um, Again, the questions that you come at are, are questions that I think a lot of these leaders don't get very often because they're not asked by, you know, a younger audience at, at the beginning of their career. So it's, it's you're putting a, information out there that's really fantastic. And I'm glad that you guys did this. Thank you. Thank you.